Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the second part of a two-part series entitled The Tale of the Kidnapping Ring. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to pause this and go back and listen to episode number 271 first, and then come back to this one. Before we get started, I have a couple of notes about the show. This is an independent ad-free podcast, which means I depend on the loyal listeners to help me to continue to create fresh content for you each week. In theory, there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to your shows on. That will help give us more visibility and help more people find us. And that will help get us up the charts. You can recommend the show in true crime fan groups and discussion forums. You can follow the show on Facebook. You can join the discussion group and follow the show's business page. Also, you can find the show on Instagram and the app formerly known as Twitter. I can't have any more change in my life right now, so it's just going to be Twitter. Also, if you would like to go above and beyond, and if you have a couple of dollars each month that you can spare, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon. There you will have access to dozens of exclusive bonuses that you won't hear anywhere else, and all of that starts at just $1 a month. If a subscription just isn't your thing and you would still like to help support, you can do so through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I had a few of you come through PayPal in the last month, so I'd like to thank Diane S., Michael M., and Jane G. Those are three of some of my usual PayPal contributors. Thank you so much for your help and support. I'd also like to thank Beth, Kathleen M., Brenda S., Bella, Kim B., Muffy, Kimberly B., Darren James, Thomas O, Christy M. This name, it's either Leone or Leon. One of them. Leon, Leone, I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. W, Stevie T, and Aloxia for either joining Patreon, raising your pledge, or coming back. Okay, I think that's all I have for now. Let's get to the show. In part one, we got to know BFFs, Juregis Katamovas and Yuri Mikhail from Lithuania and Russia, respectively. We don't know a whole lot about their personal lives beyond the fact that they both immigrated to California and started up a business together. I don't even know if they immigrated and met somewhere else or if they immigrated and happened to meet in the United States. I don't know which way it happened. Whoops, my phone. Okay, so the business that they opened was an aquarium shop, but it was actually a front for illegal activities. And those illegal activities included kidnapping, hostage taking, ransom demanding, and murdering people. The FBI did not get involved in this case until the third kidnapping because in the first two, there was no ransom demand. They kidnapped a wealthy Jewish businessman and tried to rob him and take money from his ATM only to get nothing. And then they killed him anyway. The second person was an associate of a wealthy businessman. And when they tried to use her as a bargaining chip to get money out of him, he abruptly told the kidnappers that he was busy. He hung up the phone and fled to Russia. And with that, these kidnappers were 0 for 2. So they moved on to their third target, and this would mark a change in the direction everything in this case would be going, because this would be the first kidnapping that these two were responsible for that would bring about FBI involvement. Because the third victim, his family paid a large chunk of the ransom demand, and ultimately they paid the whole ransom, but they never got their loved one back. And for two months, the FBI would be focused on this third kidnapping victim, not knowing the hostage takers already killed him and moved on to victims numbered four and five. The kidnappers managed to get money for their subsequent victims, but they still did not let them go and they never would. 
I personally don't think that these guys ever had any intentions of letting those victims go, whether they were paid or not. The FBI were still working Alexander's case. However, they were doing so under the presumption that he was still alive. As a part of their investigation, the FBI traveled to Dubai to take a look at the bank accounts where the ransom money was being wired, and it was in some paperwork that they received in Dubai from their authorities that led them to the fish aquarium shop that was owned by Katamovas and Mikkel. That is where the FBI finally made the connection from the overseas bank accounts to Southern California. And some of that ransom money, a good chunk of it, was flowing through a fish shop in the San Fernando Valley. We will pick up our story from there. When the FBI investigated Design Water World, that's when they finally got some names in their case. Yuris Katamovis and Yuri Mikhail. They were the listed owners of the business that had received $32,000 from the ransom money. So they've got some explaining to do, right? The FBI looked these two guys up and really didn't find very much in their background to speak of. And they were basically a couple of nobodies, which is why nobody knew about any kind of Russian organized crime kidnapping ring. There was no tie to anything of the sort. These are just two guys with some friends who think up creative ways to make money by any means necessary, apparently. At that point, once the FBI identified Katamavos and Mikhail, the two men were placed on around-the-clock surveillance. They kept eyes on the aquarium shop, which, to the FBI, they were looking at it from the outside and they thought it looked like a front for illegal activity. The agent said that the windows were darkened and it was hard to see inside, but I'm sure that someone out there would have something to say about how fish aquariums have to be kept at certain temperatures, away from direct sunlight, blah, blah, blah. So I'll save all of you the trouble, and I'll just tell you that. Fish aquariums have to be kept at certain temperatures, away from direct sunlight, blah, blah, blah. Once upon a time, yours truly did work at PetSmart for like four years, and I don't know a whole lot about fish that wasn't my department, but I do remember going to various pet stores and shopping around for stuff and some types of fish are kept in the dark. But at PetSmart, we didn't sell fish that had to be kept in completely dimly lit areas because mostly those would be saltwater fish who live in deeper waters and in the dark amongst the coral reefs. So that's where they hide. PetSmart didn't sell saltwater fish because of the ways that they're captured. I'm sure a lot of you know it's very controversial. Um, saltwater fish can't be bred in captivity and they're desirable because they're so much more like colorful and bright. A lot of the species are very colorful. So they can't be bred in captivity so they have to be captured in the wild. I know this is such a super sidetrack but that's okay. That's how we do right? So uh, where was I? Oh so the biggest exporters of saltwater fish in the world come from the reefs off the coast of Sri Lanka, the Philippines, and Indonesia. And there are two ways that they capture saltwater fish. They drive them out of hiding using sodium cyanide or they use dynamite. Whichever method they choose, they're systematically destroying the coral reef. And, you know, I wasn't aware when I started this about the whole sodium cyanide method that I just brought up. But what these people do to capture fish, like saltwater fish, to sell and to export is they get sodium cyanide in a pill or in a tablet form and they crush it up and they dissolve it and they put it, they mix it up with water and they put it in a squirt bottle and then they dive down to the reef and they spray this highly toxic solution directly onto the reef. And while it doesn't harm the fish, because if it did, why would they do this, right? It, it doesn't harm the fish. It 
stuns them enough and causes them to come out of the reef like they they don't know what just hit them and they're pretty much easy to catch just like that at that point but this of course does a tremendous amount of harm to the reef itself and that's why saltwater fish are controversial but they are very pretty much more vibrant and colorful than freshwater aquarium fish so i mean all of this was to say that i can see why an aquarium shop might look like a front because they do have to keep the shades drawn and the windows tinted because they have sensitive animals inside their stores so i think chances are that you could tell that these people are using this as a business front not because the windows are dark but because they're russian and they're violent and that's what they do well in the end the fbi agents weren't wrong later on when they got a good look at the inside of this quote-unquote aquarium shop there was definitely other kinds of fishy russian stuff going on in there they also found out in their investigation that both Katamavos and Mikhail hold insurance policies on each other. But this is not something that is uncommon for business partners. But it definitely feels like it when you're dealing with these types of men that there's something shady going on. You know, I, like I said, they're Russian and they're violent. It feels very dangerous for anybody like these two men to have an insurance policy on your life. Even though these two guys might be longtime BFFs from back in the day, when you have two people that are up to no good, especially violent stuff like kidnapping and murder and such, when you got two people like this, one person is always a little bit crazier than the other. One person is always a little bit greedier than the other. One person is always closer to snapping than the other. Remember when we talked about those crazy old ladies, Helen and Olga? Yeah, the two of them, they couldn't stand each other. And they hated the fact that they needed one another in order to pull off their murder for insurance scheme, right? Someone always hates the other person a little bit more than the other person hates them. That's what you have to bear in mind when deciding to swap insurance policies not just for business partners but that goes for all of you couples out there but anyways both of these guys are pretty brave trusting each other with multi-million dollar life insurance policies on one another's lives they bought those policies in january of 2002 after alexander's kidnapping and after they had finally gotten a substantial amount of money from his father having paid that full ransom Another thing that reappeared during the FBI surveillance was that light-colored Lincoln Navigator. Remember, a Lincoln Navigator was seen in the background of the ATM surveillance video where a man had used Alexander's card to check balances and to take out money. When they got the license plate number from the SUV during their 24-hour around-the-clock surveillance and ran it, it turned out to be registered to Anair Altmanis, one of the kidnapping gang's co-conspirators. He was involved in some capacity in just about every single one of the kidnappings. But remember at this point, the only kidnapping for ransom that was being investigated by these FBI agents at that time was Alexander's. He had not yet been linked to any other missing individuals. So for now, the persons of interest the FBI have are these three, Mikhail, Katamovas, and Altmanis. But then in January, while they were in the middle of working on Alexander's case, the FBI agents received a call that five days earlier, two other Russian immigrants, two more men, and that would be George Safiev and Nick Karabadze, they had been kidnapped and ransom demands were being made for their safe return. So this took the agents by surprise and also escalated the urgency of their case because now it was sounding like these two cases were probably related. The FBI now has three people being held for ransom. Location unknown. But what they do know is that these people's lives are hanging in the balance. 
so what ends up happening is they have to wait to arrest Karamovas, Mikhail, and Altmanis because making an arrest at this stage could cause the kidnappers to kill the victims. And the FBI wanted to keep trying to figure out their location first before they did any other moves. They wanted to try and find the place where they were holding the hostages while they wait to arrest them. And that in and of itself was very nerve wracking for everybody involved. They didn't know who these kidnappers were. They don't know what, ki what these guys are capable of or what they're going to do. And they didn't want to add any more risk to their victim safety. In the meantime, Konstantinos was continuing to try and negotiate with the kidnappers. At this point, they were demanding $4 million. And he's demanding to hear George's voice, Konstantinos is. But also being careful to follow the instructions that the FBI are feeding to him as well. He's giving the kidnappers excuses for the delay in getting the money and continuing to ask for proof of life. Konstantinos was actually really causing Katamovas and Mikhail a lot of frustration and grief, telling them in part, you have to understand, I have no idea to ask you every day for a voice, voice and voice, just make a deal. Could you give me his voice just for a, to say hello, and that's it, he's still alive, and then we'll go and make transfer straight away. Remember, this was all before anyone was taken into custody too, because they still had the three hostages out there somewhere, and arresting the kidnappers could have caused them to be killed. So it was pretty frustrating for the agents to not be able to arrest Mikhail and Katamavos because they know where they're at, and they have pretty good evidence against them to make an airtight case. They have to try and find the victims first. They have no choice at this point. But time was running thin. They knew the kidnappers were growing frustrated as they tried to figure out how to get their hands on more money because it had been a while. It was a waiting game. And they wanted to get this process moving along faster. So they began hearing in the phone tapped conversations that the FBI agents were listening in on that Katamovas and Mikkel, growing impatient, we're starting to talk about somebody's ear or a picture of an ear. And that really got the FBI agents worried because they did not want to start seeing body parts being used to prove that victims were alive. The FBI didn't exactly know what the plan was about this ear. It wasn't clear, but they also didn't want to wait around to try and find out. So they decided that time was up and they needed to arrest these guys. They obtained arrest warrants and search warrants for every location that they knew of that was associated with any of these suspects. After two months of looking into these three kidnappings on February 19, 2002, a highly coordinated arrest and search operation was planned where everybody was going to be arrested and everything was going to be searched all at the same time. Investigators from the various agencies that participated had warrants for 19 different locations, including all of their homes, cars, businesses, offices, and electronics. All of that were on the warrants. When the warrants were executed before dawn, six people were eventually ultimately taken into custody. The two ringleaders, for lack of a better word, Katamovas and Mikhail, and four co-conspirators, Petro Krylov, Einar Altmanis, Alec Markovskis, and Katamovis' girlfriend, Natalia Soloyev. Three of them would ultimately go on to fully cooperate with the government's case. Of the co-conspirators that were arrested, the one who seemed to be more involved in the crimes than any of the others was Altmanis. And he became a person of interest when it turned out that he was the owner of the Lincoln Navigator that was seen on that ATM surveillance. When they looked more into his background, they found out that he was somewhat of a prolific shoplifter. And it was this thing that he did was just go all up and down California and go to all the various shopping malls and steal whatever it was that he wanted and took everything back to his house. So when he was arrested, because he was more of a third person, a co-conspirator, he was charged with having stolen property inside his home based on his shoplifting activities. 
not anything related to this particular crime, at least not yet. However, among the stolen stuff that Altmanis had at his place, agents were able to find some items that actually connected him directly to Alexander's kidnapping. Remember, Alexander had that high-end auto electronics installation business, right? And he also had his own vehicle, which was a GMC Yukon. And it was quite extravagantly tricked out, too, with audio and video equipment, sound systems, cameras, monitors, all that junk. They found a couple of those actual video monitors that had been removed from Alexander's vehicle inside Altmanis's place of residence. Remember, he had driven that vehicle. He was lured, Alexander was lured to one of their houses by being asked for a ride to the location of one of the vehicles that he supposedly wanted to bring into Alexander's shop for some custom work to be done. But that really wasn't true. It was just a ruse. So for Alexander's car monitors to be found at Altmanis's house was pretty damning. Another place that was searched that was very suspicious was the aquarium shop that Katamovas and Mikhail ran. When investigators got a look inside, they were like, yeah, there were some fish tanks, maybe like one, but the place looked more like a bar with some fish tanks in it as like part of the decor. There was an actual bar in there with bar stools and alcohol that could be served from behind the bar. There was a pool table, couches, chairs, coffee tables, end tables. This wasn't a fish business, this was a fishy business. It was a cover for Katamovas and Mikkel's illegal activities. In the trash can at one of the offices inside, one of the agents found a small piece of paper in the trash can that had been ripped up. When the agent assembled these, this piece of paper back together, it turned out to be a list of things that someone jotted down to remind themselves what to say during a kidnapping negotiation. When Mikhail's house was searched, a treasure trove of evidence against him and Katamovis was collected. And that included the $4 million ransom note for George that had been faxed to London. It had George's actual signature on it. There were also records and financial documents belonging to George and his business partner, Nick, as well as other financial documents connecting him to bank accounts that the ransom money had passed through. There were also four pairs of handcuffs, plastic zip ties that matched the ones that were found on the victims, 14 handguns, various handgun parts, ammunition, a silencer, an electronic shock baton, and several stolen or counterfeit passports. Mikkel was apparently a pretty organized and meticulous guy when it came to his paperwork and important documents. Everything was not only well organized for the FBI when they gathered up all this evidence, but Mikkel had also labeled and filed everything together for them quite neatly. He had stacks of boxes with bank account information from all over the world that were used to funnel ransom money. Also amongst Mikkel's belongings, agents found a small Sony digital recorder that did have some recordings stored on it. And some of those recordings were of Katamovas speaking to hostage, George Safiev. The search of Katamovas' two homes revealed even more evidence connecting the kidnappers to the victims. In his home, one of his homes, I think he had two of them, the FBI found weight plates and they noted that while they had weight plates or he had weight plates at his house, they did not find any equipment associated with those weight plates, such as weight bars or a weight bench, anything of that sort. It was just those big round weight plates. They also found an envelope with a phone number written on it. And it turned out that number belonged to Alexander Umansky's family. 
It was the number the kidnappers were calling to be in contact with Alexander's family while they were working out getting the ransom together. At Katamovis's other home, they found a dagger, rope, duct tape, a handgun, ammunition, and shoes with bloodstains on them. Those shoes were matched up with some bloody footprints that were left in Meyer Muscatel's blood near the Parrot's Ferry Bridge. Remember back in part one, when Mikhail and Katamovis were carrying Meyer's body, this was victim number one, to the bridge, they dropped him and left blood on the ground. Well, Katamovis stepped in that blood and left footprints behind on the bridge. So not only did they have the shoe that made that footprint, they found it in Katamovis' home with the blood of their first victim still on it. Investigators also found one of those prepaid burner cell phones. I mean, that's got to be one of the dumbest things to hang on to. You're going to be doing bad things. You're going to be acting like a bad person. You're going to be going out hurting and maiming and murdering and killing and kidnapping and whatever you do. But you're going to hang on to the burner phone that you did it all with. Yeah, you're dumb. But yeah, that burner phone was the one that had been used to try and work out all of those ransom negotiations with Constantinos. Remember where they were trying to squeeze more money out of him for George, but he wanted to hear George's voice and they just refused and it never happened. But they got the money anyway, but they never were never did bring about proof of life and it was because he was dead. Anyway, back to the evidence. There was plenty of cross-contamination evidence in this case. Even though they had dumped the bodies hundreds of miles away into a body of water, things like to stick to things. In fact, on two of the pairs of handcuffs that I told you about were seized at Katamovis' house, the evidence lab was able to swab up some DNA off two pairs of those handcuffs. And it turned out that the DNA on one pair of handcuffs belonged to George Saviev. And the DNA on the other pair of handcuffs belonged to Nick Karbazi, his business partner. And because these kidnappers killed these people inside their own home, fibers will be coming back from these watery graves to haunt them. Just because you throw somebody in water, doesn't mean it's going to wash away all the evidence. A pretty solid connection was made between the suspects and not just the crimes, but also a solid connection between the suspects and the victims themselves. Katamavos and Mikkel had a number of personal items that belonged to their victims. They had audio recordings, especially two separate recordings that the FBI was able to come up with that were made of a portion of a conversation from two different locations that connected the suspects to the kidnappings with that audio snippet. One recording was made by Constantinos on his end. Remember, he was recording all of his conversations with the kidnappers, and it just so happened on the kidnappers' end of that same call, either Katamavos or Mikkel recorded a snippet of that exact conversation at that exact time, so they had clips of a singular conversation, two separate clips, one made by Constantinos and one made by the kidnappers. And that would be very hard to try and explain away. Why the two separate people have separate recordings of a singular conversation. Evidence the FBI also had included the DNA samples from the victims on the handcuffs found at the home and a whole bunch of bank records that pretty much tied everything together. It turned out that none of these people that we're talking about today, these people that immigrated here from Russia, that have basically turned into serial killers, I don't think any of them came to the United States from Russia or Lithuania to pursue the American dream. They didn't come here to work for a better life. They came here to try and earn money the easy way, which when you really think about it in this case with this crime, all that these guys did, it was actually a lot of work. 
I guess the more accurate thing would be to say maybe they didn't want to do legitimate work. Maybe they liked being mean and violent and brutal to other people. And this was a way for them to be able to have an outlet for that and to make money. Whatever the reasons, this is what they decided was going to be their way of making money, grabbing people off the street and demanding ransoms for their lives. The one thing that searchers didn't find with those almost 20 search warrants that they had were the hostages. They were nowhere to be found and that was a big, huge problem. There was one person who they did have in custody who did know where the hostages were at and that would be Mr. Anair Altmanis. He was in custody at a police substation in Hollywood. So the agents went there, the FBI agents went there and paid him a visit to see if they could squeeze him for some details on what happened if he would actually be willing to speak to them. They didn't have to squeeze all that hard. When the FBI agents sat down with Altmanis in the interrogation room, he just sat right down. He rested his hands on the table. I think one of the agents may have even said he slapped his hand down and muttered three words. I know everything. And with that, Altmanis agreed to cooperate fully with the investigation and to provide everything that he knew truthfully about the kidnappings in return for a lighter sentence for himself. One of the first things Altmana said was that there weren't just three of them doing these kidnappings for a ransom. There were actually four of them. And the whole entire plan to kidnap Alexander Umansky, that was put together by Petro Krylov alone. Nobody else. Remember, he was the one who used to work for Alexander at his custom auto electronics shop. He was the only one of them who knew Alexander. Mikhail and Karmovis did not know him. He told them that he knew Alexander and his family had a lot of money and that they should target him and that they would pay. And just like that, Mr. Alexander Umansky became their next victim. Altmanis had more critical news for the agents. There weren't just three kidnapping victims. There were five. And the kidnappings started about two months before Alexander's, back in October of 2001, which I've already told you about. That would be Meyer Muscatel and Rita Peckler. Remember, both of those attempts to get money from the victims or through ransom failed. Yeah, Altmanis ratted them out on those first two cases as well. Altmanis wasn't kidding when he said he knew everything. But the FBI wanted to know if he knew where everybody was. Of course he did. And he would tell them that too. The FBI agents were hoping it wasn't too late, but it was. As this interrogation of Atmanis continued, he did eventually confirm for the FBI agents that everybody was dead. He went into full details about how they all planned each of the kidnappings, that they researched and looked into these people's lives and then plotted how they were going to kidnap each one of them. They thought up the ruse and the story that they were going to tell in order to get the victim to the location where they could be taken hostage someplace private, not to cause a big scene somewhere, which they really wanted to avoid. And of course, Almanis told the agents the location of the bodies in that reservoir that was about a six-hour drive north from where they were located. So they had to go get dive teams up in that county. It's kind of near Yosemite. So they had to get the dive teams in, up in that county where the bodies were located out to that reservoir and to begin this task of searching for these five bodies that they believe are in there. They used remote control vehicles with side scanning sonar. No, wait, you know what? They, they're looking for four bodies and I'll explain that in a moment. They used remote control vehicles with side scanning sonar and one by one, they were finding the bodies that had been weighed down and dumped. In all, they brought up four victims out of the water. The fifth one, who was the first victim, Meyer Muscatel, they didn't take any extra steps to weigh him down 
and he ended up floating to the surface pretty quickly. A father and son who had been coming back from a fishing trip were the ones who found Meyer's body floating pretty much near the bridge where he had been thrown from into the water. His body was pulled from the reservoir, but the thing was is that the county had yet to identify him, so he was a John Doe sitting in their morgue or in their coroner's office, wherever they keep them. And they had no idea who this guy might be until this case broke. Eventually, he was linked to this group of kidnappings. So well, as I stated earlier, when all was said and done, Mikhail and Katamovis were paid out about $1.2 million. And once investigators analyzed the movements of all the money, almost all of it eventually traced back to the two of them, along with some of their co-conspirators here and there. Katamovis and Mikhail used this money to live the good life. They drove nice cars, they had nice homes and nice things, and they did fun things. They took beautiful vacations, and they just were living it up on some blood money. After everyone was arrested, three of the co-conspirators, Mikhail, Katamovis, and Krylov, those three were being held at the Los Angeles County Jail. And while there, Mikhail came up with an escape plan. He wanted the three of them, along with some other inmates that they would try and recruit, they would smuggle tools into their cells, and then they would use those tools to bore holes in the walls in their cells in order to reach an adjacent stairwell. Once they're able to get into that stairwell, they would use a hydraulic pump to push the bars on the windows apart and then they would climb through the window and rappel down the side of the building. And they would arrange for a motorcycle gang to be waiting for them outside. Not sure why that was specifically a part of the plan. It had to be a motorcycle gang. I don't know. I guess why not, right? You need a ride home somehow from your jailbreak. So anyway, this motorcycle gang would be waiting for them outside the county jail. They would hop on, you know, the random motorcycles and spin off in all directions before meeting up back again at a designated safe house. So in carrying out this escape plan, Mikkel was able to smuggle a whole plethora of tools into his jail cell without anybody noticing. Hacksaw blades, wrenches, screwdrivers, fishing line, paint, work gloves, bolt cutters, and a camcorder. Originally, Katamovis' cell wasn't adjacent to a stairwell, but he somehow managed to get himself moved to a different cell that did have a staircase next to it. Mikhail tried recruiting another inmate named Billy Parker to join them in their escape plan and offered him the use of his tools, but for a price. But Mikhail had to warn him, he was clear that they all needed to be prepared to kill any of the corrections officers if they ran into any on their way out. Well, this inmate, Billy Parker, he wasn't having it, and he informed on Mikkel's plans to the prison officials. When Mikkel's cell was searched, they found a large hole carved in the wall, as well as his stash of tools. In his co-conspirator Krylov's cell, they found a hole in his wall too, though it was significantly smaller. He had also hacksaw blades and a screwdriver. But over in Katamovis' cell, prison officials didn't find anything. No evidence of any tunneling activities, nor did he have any tools or other contraband in his cell. They did, however, find extensive evidence linking him to the escape conspiracy along with Mikhail and Krylov. So that was plenty of evidence. Once the escape plan was foiled, Mikhail was relocated to a high security section of the San Bernardino County Jail, where he was placed into a special administrative program. He needed to be kept isolated from all other inmates, and whenever he was taken from one area of the jail to another or moved around anywhere inside the building, he needed to be blindfolded and sat in a wheelchair so he wouldn't be able to count his steps 
or orientate his location within the building. Despite keeping him away from others and also in a special housing unit, he still managed to work on a very detailed escape plan from that county jail as well, including having written a letter to an alleged member of the Mexican mafia offering $1 million in exchange for help with the escape. The jail officials were able to intercept that letter and found it to be a plan that was quite feasible if nobody had picked up on it. So Katamovas and Mikkel went on trial in July of 2006, almost five years since their first victim, Meyer Mascatel, was kidnapped and murdered. If convicted, both men were looking at potentially being sentenced to death. Their trial lasted until January of 2007, when the jury found both of them guilty on all counts. Two months later, they were both sent to federal death row, which is where they are today at the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. Anar Altmanis admitted to his role in the kidnappings of Alexander, Nick, and George. He admitted that he participated in suffocating both Alexander and Nick. He pleaded guilty to conspiracy to take hostages that resulted in death and three counts of hostage taking resulting in death. For his help in leading the FBI agents to the bodies and providing his key testimony at Katamova's and Mikhail's trials, realistically, Altmanis could have been handed a sentence of life in prison. But because of just how much he helped wrap this case up for the feds, he got the sweetest of sweetheart deals. And even though the prosecutor wanted Altmanis sentenced to 20 years in federal prison, the judge actually sentenced him to more. 23 and a half years in prison. At his sentencing, Altmanis apologized for his actions in Russian through a translator and said that he just got totally confused in this life. The life of this person that I have become, he said, I do not want it. Please forgive me. Katamovas' girlfriend, Natalia, I don't want to say her last name again, she was the one who called Nick and lured him to the Design Waterworld offices, which, remember, it's a place that looks like somewhere you would socialize not to plot kidnappings and ransoms. And once Nick was there, they forced him to lure George there too, who was the main target that had all the money. So with that, the both of them became hostages, and the both of them ended up in the reservoir, along with Alexander as well. Natalia pleaded guilty to conspiracy to taking hostages that resulted in death and two counts of hostage taking that resulted in death. She also received a substantially lighter sentence for her role in everything, considering her role in everything. And prosecutors, they were looking to have her sentenced to 11 years in federal prison, but the judge ended up throwing 15 years at her, pointing out that if it wasn't for her, who did this, by the way, because Katamovas had promised to buy her a BMW. Yeah, she did this for a ride. If it wasn't for her, the judge said, it is highly likely that both George and Nick would have been alive that day. Co-conspirator Alec, he stood watch over two of the victims while they were being held hostage. He pleaded guilty to conspiracy to take hostages resulting in death and was initially given a sentence of 15 years. But also because of his help and his cooperation, he got a good deal too. And later on, when Natalia was given that sentence of 15 years also, Alec actually managed to get his sentence reduced by a couple of years because he said, and the prosecutors agreed, that Natalia was more culpable than he was, so he should get a lesser sentence, not a sentence equal to hers. And the judge agreed and shaved a couple years off. Petro Krylov was the only one who took his chance on going to trial. He was the one who used to be an employee at Alexander's Custom Auto Shop and suggested him as a victim that they might be able to get a good ransom for from his family. Well, he ended up being convicted at trial on the same conspiracy to commit hostage taking and three counts of hostage taking resulting in death. And U.S. prosecutors did seek the death penalty. But Petro Krylov's attorney, 
managed to argue successfully for a life sentence without the possibility of parole by claiming that he was working for Katamovas and Mikhail under threat, that they said that they would kill his family if he didn't help them with their kidnapping for ransom plans. So he ended up with the life sentence and is currently at the federal penitentiary in, oh gosh, this K Canaan. Ah, I got it. He ended up with a life sentence and is currently at the federal penitentiary in Canaan, Pennsylvania. As it stands, the death sentences for both Katamovas and Mikkel in 2018 were upheld. And that is probably where they will stay forever. I did look it up. I wanted to see like what was going on with the death penalty, the federal death penalty. And there's a few dozen inmates on federal death row. Katamovas and Mikhail are the only two who committed their crimes in the state of California. And dreamers, that was the tale of the kidnapping for ransom ring. I hope that you guys really enjoyed this episode. Saying Russian names isn't my most favorite thing in the world to do, but they tend to kind of look more complicated than they actually are to pronounce. So if you pace yourself, you will make it across that 15 letter last name that seemingly has way too many vowels than really necessary. If you have any questions or comments, you know where to find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter. I updated my phone a couple days ago and I suddenly found something different in a place where I used to have an app that I thought that I was familiar with. Um, and then when I updated my phone and came back to it, that app was gone and there was something else there. Yeah, you can find me on that app and on Instagram. And I will be back soon with another installment of our show. What's up next is probably going to be the Patreon episode. But anyways, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. If you want to hear the update that I have to share with you, you can keep on listening. Otherwise, just click on over to whatever's next in your queue. Until next time, sweet dreams. Many of you already know the whole backstory about my estranged husband and me. If you've been listening to the show for more than three years, then you're probably very well aware of it. We got married in 2006 and, you know, I've been reflecting back on our relationship through this process that I am going through with therapy and treatment and recovery. And I've gotten to this point where I'm not sure what our marriage was truly about and if it was even really right for me just because of past trauma. We had a rocky relationship for most of the 2010s all the way through 2020 when we finally ended it for good. But neither one of us seemed really happy and we ended up splitting in 2020 right before COVID. And then we moved here to Nevada and things between he and I have been kind of lingering around ever since. COVID kind of put a pin in everything for us. And though a lot of stuff that both he and I have put each other through, there's been a lot. When we got to 2023, finally, things seemed to calm down and settle between us. And we were enjoying a new and different kind of connection and relationship, but still not really moving in any direction it was just comfortable but working things out in our relationship was already off the table and it has been for quite some time that's not an option the only way to go still for us was to move closer to divorce or to just continue to linger in this gray area i can't get into my husband's head from what's been going on between us in the last month, I feel like he's kind of reached a breaking point with everything. And
and he kind of needed a break to sort through some of his own conflicted feelings that have been building up in him. I've spent the last three and a half years sorting through everything imaginable a person can feel. And to tell you the truth, I don't know what he's been doing with his time in the last three years, but it doesn't seem like he's made any emotional progress. And something in June, or I'm sorry, in July, recently, just triggered him and we abruptly stopped talking. And that was hard on me because I do have so few actual in-person connections here in Nevada. And maybe there was a part of me that was still kind of taking him for granted. In the last six months, I've made some changes with my home. I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. I've got some new, fresh, updated stuff. And he was there helping me through it all. And I was really happy to have him his help. But maybe I kind of just expected him to help me when I needed it. And I wasn't considering that what that might have looked like for him and that being said I don't know where things are at at the moment between us because we are in touch but we're not really talking very much but one of the last things he did say is that he just can't let go and I understand that and it's been wearing on me with him Without him coming around like he had been, I've been doing less, I've been going less places, and I've just been sort of hiding in my apartment. It's also been like miserably hot here in Nevada as well, so there's that. And I usually stay here until I have to leave. But anyway, it's the end of our marriage looming that's really dragging me down emotionally and physically. And I have to admit, I kind of feel what he had said. I'm ha- I had a hard time letting go. But I think I got through, I'm a little bit further along in the process maybe now, or we just did it differently and we're not at the same place anymore. But anyway, I'm okay. It's not tragic. It's not like life altering. It's just exhausting. That's what it is. This whole experience, this last three weeks of July and the first two weeks of August have been very exhausting for me. So I'm trying to put all of my energy today into this and us and to make sure I fulfill my obligations to all of you. But anyway, that's all I got. And thanks for listening. I hope that explains at least a little bit of why I do what I do. Thank you all. I love you. And I'll be back soon.